Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to The Deal Room, our midweek show where we talk all things corporate finance. And on the docket, we've got three items to discuss, Stephen and I. First up, SpaceX. Their tender offer values the company at about $150 billion US dollars. Then we've got Aston Martin, who struck a strategic supply agreement for high-performance EVs that will see the US-based Lucid Group getting roughly a 3.7% stake in the UK automaker. But more than that, what binds those two stories together? And we're going to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia and perhaps geopolitics as well. And then we're going to turn back to the banking industry and talk about Goldman Sachs. Headlines this week, they're set to lay off 125 managing directors in their third round of job cuts in less than a year. So we'll discuss the cyclical nature of the investment banking division. Before we begin, though, don't forget to like in terms of if you're watching this on YouTube or give us a rating and a star review if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, it really helps get this out to as many people as possible. But Stephen, how are you first? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good, thank you, Ant. And we've both been really busy over the last few weeks with our summer analyst program, the first one coming to a conclusion. What I love most about the first three weeks is that they, they have an end of, end of program survey and they had to rank the three different weeks. Uh, week one was markets, week two was technology, and week three was banking. And guess what? Banking won. Banking was the most liked week <laughs> out of the three. So I was, I was delighted that people prefer Excel spreadsheets and pitch decks uh, to, to kind of trading screens and platforms and things like that. But, you know, we'll keep the competition alive. I'll give you a chance next time. That's uh, so, okay. I'm going to have to speak to the, the scheduling committee and see if they can put me in, slot me in a few more hours here just to uh, bat for the corner of markets. But yeah, well, well done. Hats off to you, one nil, two more to go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> All right, so Elon, Elon Musk's SpaceX, what have we got? Yeah, so this is a story that came out earlier on this week. Uh, and so SpaceX has agreed to sell $750 million of shares, existing shares owned by existing shareholders, at a valuation of $150 billion, the company valuation $150 billion, $80 per share. Now, this is a story for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, whenever SpaceX is in the news, we like to hear about it because it's the world's most valuable private company. And it's been getting more and more valuable over the last year. Obviously, if you're a public company, your value changes minute by minute, second by second, based on the share price and market capitalization. But as a private company, you define your valuation whenever there is an event that people buy shares. So SpaceX has had over 30 rounds of funding during the course of its life, all the way from very, very nascent to the world's most valuable private company. And its, and its valuation has increased every time, as you can expect. And the company's raised over $10 billion through these 30 rounds. 
But this time last year, they did a value. Uh, they did a, uh, a fundraising round where the company was valued at 127 billion dollars. Then they did a valuation. Then they did a fundraising round in March 2023 that we could talk about a little bit with regards to who was involved in that deal. That valued the company at 137 billion dollars. And now the company has has uh, launched this tender offer, which is a little bit different, but it values the company at 150 billion dollars. Now these numbers are just growing and growing and growing, and you've got to think to yourself, well, you kind of got to think to yourself, why? Why are these? Why is this valuation going? To excuse the pun, stratospheric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and obviously, the reason why, in part, is the you know it's the hype around space. You know, the space industry, from a commercial perspective, is a growth industry. It's grown significantly since 2010, and it's set to double to a one trillion dollar industry by 2030. So if you've got the golden company within an industry that is growing pretty rapidly, then you're going to pile in, regardless, quite frankly, of what the revenue is at at the moment. But shall we talk about what a tender offer is? Because that might be a new phrase uh, to the listener. Yeah, let's start with that. If you could break let's that down for us. Offer. Yeah. So, so a tender offer, it's, you know, it's also known as a secondary sale. Um, so this is where a company decides to sell existing shares from existing shareholders to new investors for a price determined within a range by the company. So if I was one of the original shareholders of SpaceX, you know, one of the original investors, or maybe an early employee, this is an opportunity for them to have a liquidity event. When I invest in a company at a very early stage, or maybe when I join as a junior employee, one of my major incentives is an exit event at some point in the future. Now, I know that these shares might not get sold you know, for five years, maybe seven years, maybe 10 years through a you know, strategic buyout or through an IPO or something like that. But SpaceX is over 20 years old. So the story here, just in terms of the rationale, is... Imagine if I'm employee number 10 and I've been holding these quite <laughs> these shares for quite a long time, all these share options for quite a long time, but I haven't really been able to release much liquidity. I might be able to borrow against the value of them. That's one way that you can do it in the States. But this is an opportunity for me to start to realize some of that early, you know, early investments and early returns on investment. So it's an it's a nice thing to do. You know, $750 million sale is going to make people, you know, quite a few people relatively wealthy, but it's not going to raise new funds for a company that already has over $5 billion of cash on its balance sheet. So it's just a slightly different corporate transaction. I think one that we should be a little bit aware of. Mm. And then what's Musk's kind of involvement in this and what part does he play? Yeah, so obviously this is always a story because Elon Musk is always a story. Yeah. And this is <laughs> this is his company, essentially. You know, so he started the company. Uh, he started by owning 100% of the shares. He now owns just under 50% of the ordinary shares. So think about that. Just as a $150 billion valuation, that's where a big chunk of his wealth comes from. I can't imagine, by the way, that he's he's particularly involved in the tender offer. I don't think he's 
going to be selling a lot of his shares. Um, he owns 78, 79% of the voting rights. So it's this classic corporate structure, you know, I need to raise money in the equity markets. I need to have equity investors. So my ordinary shareholding or percentage shareholding is going to go down and down and down as we complete round number 23, 24, 25, 26. But I want to maintain control of the company. So I'm not going to be selling special voting class shares. I'm going to be selling ordinary shares. I'm going to be raising money. So Musk is still in control. And quite frankly, it is <laughs> it's probably the most exciting part of his empire. And it's certainly the thing that seems to get him most excited on a regular basis. Yeah, I was thinking like if I was thinking of the Twitter um, frequency of what he actually comments on, he talks SpaceX probably the most from when you actually track his tweets on a, on a regular basis. But one of my questions then is that Elon Musk and I think the Twitter debacle kind of brought some of this to the forefront in terms of the regulators, his behavior then Tesla as well. Um, he always seems to get away with quite a lot. And I just wonder, you said space is a growth area. Uh, I can see that from the commercial side of things, but from a geopolitical um, battleground, one who can secure space, much like maritime routes in the sea and previous kind of empires, this is the next kind of dominant area. And obviously, competition is rife with the Chinese, it's the usual, usual uh, players, let's say. I just wonder then, is Elon so ballsy with how he behaves and how he conducts business across his empire in different industries? Because the US government actually need his satellite technology to be anywhere near um, competitive in that space race. It's, yeah, it's such an interesting one. And it goes to the dynamics of efficiencies within governments and outsourcing and commercial contracts and you know we know that the the u.s you know military industrial complex divvies out billions of dollars of contracts to private companies every single year and this is to an extent no difference it's not a military asset but it certainly is a strategic asset but when a, when a country becomes so reliant on these private companies especially those companies with CEOs that tend to be a little bit maverick um, and tend to not always toe the national or the party line, then this becomes a security threat or a strategic concern. Mm. And it's been slightly highlighted by who's investing in SpaceX. Again, it was announced, and we'll, we'll tie this all together in the next story, but it was announced in March 2023 that the Saudi Public Investment Fund that we've spoken about previously is uh, has taken a stake in in round 30 of SpaceX's funding. So the Saudis are obviously a major player on the geopolitical stage, and they are using their heft as we've spoken, their monetary heft, as we've spoken about previously, in order to just kind of sow seeds, lay tentacles in different parts of different strategic industries, cultural innovation, things like that. Again, yeah, as I said, you know, if if the US government relies on SpaceX to launch its rockets and to launch its satellites into space, to have a Saudi involvement, maybe it's okay, but it's certainly something to discuss, certainly something to, th uh, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many kind of second, third order effects of the broader relationship 
particularly when it comes to we're going to talk about EVs, but fossil fuels, military protection, all in the Middle East, so on and so forth, and the relationship strategically between the US and Saudi and how stretched that's already become, actually, in a bigger macro context. Obviously, when oil prices were super high during the Ukraine crisis, it was America who was putting, heaping the pressure at that time on the Saudis to know that they're the one country who's got spare capacity, can actually move the lever and start pumping more. And then the Saudis at the same time are investing in SpaceX. Kind of, yeah, it's interesting. There's lots of little power plays and leverage going on here, isn't there? It, there is, and the Saudis occupy a really, really unique role in in between the two major powers at the moment, in between mm. the US and China. You know, historically they've been an ally of the US, but there's been great tensions over the last few years, as you just mentioned. And obviously, they've the Saudis have continued to, rightly so, cozy up to the Chinese in terms of strategic investments and collaboration. And they are playing this kingmaker role um, mm. between the two in certain aspects. You know, armed with significant oil reserves. So it's it's certainly one to watch, and certainly an interesting one to cover. Mm. Okay, well, look, let let's swiftly move then into Aston Martin. And I thought this was just going to be a conversation about about cars and engines here, but there's a little bit more that we can uh, unpick. But Aston Martin, they came out and they forecast it would hit midterm targets of, you know, we've been talking about, you know, over these recent episodes, hundreds of billions of dollars in profits and things like that. And we've talked about oil companies and talking Saudi, talking Aramco, but Aston Martin forecast it would hit midterm targets of 500 million pounds of adjusted profits on 2 billions of revenue by by 24 2025 saying it would eventually sell 17,000 cars I'll have, I'll have a quick look while you're giving a bit of a, a background of this of 17,000 cars in comparison to say I don't know Toyota I wonder what Toyota sells in a given year <laughs> I'll let you I'll let you I'll let you get on with that as I'm talking that's a, that's a good good bit of research but yeah the story here Aston Martin the kind of beleaguered embattled uh supercar manufacturer based in the UK uh, has agreed to pay 232 million dollars in cash and shares to a company called Lucid now Lucid is a US listed listed via a SPAC actually a special purpose acquisition company US listed electric car company um, and designer of components that go into electric cars, quite importantly. Uh, so the deal is basically a tie-up between Aston Martin and Lucid, whereby Lucid is going to provide the powertrains, the electric vehicle powertrains and tree systems that are necessary for Aston Martin to go ahead and move fully into the electric vehicle space. I think they, uh, they want to launch their first full EV supercar by 2025. And there's there's, there's real strategic rationale here. These two organizations currently are subscale, right? And you're going to tell me, have you you found out the Toyota? Yeah, I think it's 2 million. 2 million versus 17,000 in 2024, 2025. And we know that, you know, Aston Martin's not mass manufacturing the same way, but it is subscale. And we've seen this, you know, the the financials of Aston Martin last year in 22 is they lost 500 million, 500 million dollars of loss off 1.3 billion dollars of revenue. 
Lucid, the electric vehicle manufacturer that's trying to scale up, you know, it's remember Tesla back in 2011, 2012, when they were just uh, producing 10, 20,000 cars a year. Lucid's in that same nascent, can we scale up? Can we survive the pain for long enough to achieve the scale necessary to start turning a profit? So Lucid lost $1.3 billion off revenues of just $608 million in 2022. So this company is hemorrhaging cash in its aim to get to a level, to get to a scale where, you know, where you can start going into profitability. And we know how tough that was for Tesla, but the proceeds, you know, but as soon as you get there, you saw what happened to Tesla's stock. So maybe there's an upside story if you can survive the big hump. But this just, so this is strategically sound for two subscale companies. I mean, it makes sense for Lucid. Lucid, this move, it's the first move they've made to provide components to incumbent vehicle manufacturers. So if you can provide the architecture or the infrastructure or the component parts to help these types of subscale organizations get up to speed, then actually, it's a relatively sound business model because one of the toughest things about being an elect uh, being a car manufacturer is distribution, sales, marketing, design, design, all of that stuff. So if you're just the nuts and the bolts, the margin's not necessarily quite as high, but it's probably an easier business to say, hey, Aston Martin, we're going to sell you a bunch of our powertrains that take a while to design and we need scale, but we know how to do it. Right? So, you know. It makes sense and, and the shares pop 15% on the announcement. And it makes sense for Aston Martin as well. You know, Aston Martin's struggling company to get the scale to build an EV infrastructure. You know, that's billions and billions and billions of dollars, which, as you say, on 17,000 cars, it's just not going to make sense. So Aston Martin have, have have struck a deal to basically future-proof itself by outsourcing critical parts of its technology, which is not unusual for, for, for smaller car manufacturers. So I think, it, I don't know, I don't know what you think. I think it makes sense that this, you know, deal struck out of maybe a little bit of desperation, but I think it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, it seems like other high-end sports cars are already moving in that direction. Aston Martin almost feels a little bit like a laggard in that sense, technologically. Uh, which is you know driving this deal um i think that this is the fight for survival for you i'm a little bit more bearish than than i think that you are i think they're losing money i don't think they can um they can they have to look for other strategic ways of just shortening the time to market from the technology point of view and they're getting a lot of pressure as you said the saudi arabia public investment fund i was looking at some rough calculations on this um so just going back, the US company, so well, let's just kind of wind it all the way back. So the electric car maker um, is among the biggest US investments by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. So as part of this vision fund, as you said, looking to diversify their economy, nothing better than being a fossil fuel driven economy than to be you know, balls deep into the EV space to show your commitment in that case. So fine, I get that. I get the, the spin. Um, the US company, PIF, owns 60.46% stake. Back in May, shares in Lucid 
which had posted a net accumulating losses of nearly 5 billion since Q1 of 2020. So using that as the baseline, that made PIF's stake worth around $8 billion. Its investment was worth around $17.4 billion just in mid-2022. Uh, the Wealth Fund's bond prospectus showed uh, and around $26 billion when Lucid was listed in 2021. So their investment has gone from $26 billion in 2021 to then $17 to now eight. So surely... Um, kind of Aston Martin's own kind of board aside, there's these, must be an immense amount of pressure to make this happen from, from PIF, you would have thought. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. And we talk about it a lot in the markets part of, <laughs> of the business and the markets part of the teaching that we do. It's, it's you know, do you chase losses? Do you, <laughs> do you throw bad money after goods? And, and how much do you double down in order to try and pull out from the nosedive and start to recover. You know, the, the psychology of that is so, is so fraught. And, you know, it really makes a good investor that can cut off ties and, you know, take a loss and take a losing position. And I wonder from a PIF perspective, from a public investment fund perspective, I wonder whether they've already thought to themselves, and this would be pretty good foresight, They've already thought to themselves, you know, there is going to be this dip. This is the arc of a nascent high capex technology company. There is going to be this valuation dip. We know that we want to invest a cumulative X billion, you know, and if the valuation goes down, our X billion just gets us a bigger stake. And maybe they're, maybe they're looking at it over a 10 or 15 year period and thinking these few years of you know, marking to market pain in terms of valuation are gonna get some compensated if we can just hold out for long enough. Our pockets are deep. Tesla needs a proper rival in this space. We're gonna back this horse with our very, very deep pockets. Maybe they're being strategic. You wouldn't put it past a fund of this sophistication to be strategic, but also there is definitely an element of, oh my gosh, we are hemorrhaging money and look at the valuation going down and down and down it'd be interesting so that they're investing in spacex and at this which is owned by elon musk and then at the same time they're investing and pushing trying to make a serious uh, competitor for tesla <laughs> it's i think i think look conflicts you know whenever whenever a uh, a 650 billion dollar sovereign wealth fund founded off the back of fossil fuels decides to invest in the electrification of combustion of a, of a fossil fuel heavy industry i think i think <laughs> conflicts of interest are taken as uh, taken as standard and as you know they also invested in in aston martin yeah I, I just wonder whether it's um would i strategically want to invest companies aside is elon musk worth backing if i was piff and it's kind of like let's Let's just back Musk, but then Musk's yeah, you know, it's too much risk factor in one individual, I guess, if you centralized it like that. You've just got to back him and diversify. Yeah, I think I think you definitely want him as part of your your portfolio, but yeah, you don't want to be overly concentrated. And obviously, that's what this the public investment fund is doing. And it's so interesting to see the breadth of 
this sovereign wealth fund in tandem mm. with the other Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds. And it's it's worth maybe just spending a couple of minutes on this in the context of, <laughs> of a lucid story and in the context of the fact that public investment fund also own 18% of Aston Martin. They took a stake in SpaceX and we've spoken about the PGA Tour and, yeah. and all, you know, it's coming up almost every week. So it deserves a bit of attention. So, so this, so, yeah, so go for it. So I was just going to say on that point, so as they, um, they're obviously investing quite what it seems to be proactively in the Western world for the obvious reasons of the, the kind of perception, if you like, as a, as an investment center in terms of revolutionizing the economy of Saudi Arabia. Do we have any visibility of them investing elsewhere, like in China, for example? Do the PIF invest in China? And what can we learn from perhaps trying to anticipate then the future relationships by the investment patterns going east and west? Yeah, it's a really, this is, this is fascinating. And I love to compare this against and you'll definitely have a, a much more nuanced uh, source of information than I do, but compare it against the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative of the last 20 years. So China is, has been using its significant investment reserves, uh, foreign currency reserves, to build up strategic influence through infrastructure projects across, you know, maybe you would call it the Global South trying to win partners, win allies through building bridges <laughs> and building critical infrastructure and hard concrete cement assets. So that was their strategy. And, you know, to, to some extent it's worked and to others it, it may not have. Now, the Saudis, the strategy seems to be very different. They are looking at critical strategic pieces of innovation technology and culture to diversify away from its traditional reliance on fossil fuels. They're not just playing the US and the Western game, although that's what we hear about most in the news. And that's what we talk about quite a lot. Um, they're also courting the Chinese. And uh, there was an announcement of a $50 billion co-investment strategic alliance between uh, the public investment fund and the Chinese uh, earlier on, actually last year, sorry. So they're playing both sides. And I think that they are taking a pretty interesting tactical approach to where they want little landing zones of influence mm -hmm. across the world. It's really, really fascinating. It'd be mm. quite a fun job to, to have, actually. Uh, so it's like playing a game of of risk or something like that. You know, where am I? Where are my strategic outposts going to be? Yeah, I wonder how you go about. How does the PIF recruit? Would they? Um, what type of roles would you envisage that would sit within like a fund like that? I know it's, it would be a a monster in size, and they'll have lots of different types of departments. But as a as a young person where you're just kind of quite intrigued by the strategic nature of that fund um rather than the actual down dirty kind of deal mechanic side of it what type of yeah. role would that look like well it seems to be you know it's a, it's it's a vertical asset manager in the sense that it invests across the spectrum i know that they've been building up their presence in new york uh, you know, getting analysts to invest in public equities. You know, they invest a lot in public equities in the States. 
so you've got your 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 bread and butter public equity analyst invest portfolio manager type you know buy side role that you could be thinking about but then you've got your big private equity turnaround trophy assets type uh type team a lot of whom are based in Riyadh and then you've got the venture side which in part is is part is tied up with the the SoftBank Vision Fund the 45 billion dollar fund that was announced almost 10 years ago now and that's where you know you can go through the venture capital route into space so i think you probably have to land some, somewhere and then find your way in if you are interested in joining a very very deep pocketed quite exciting place to be mm. because they're doing deals all the time this is not an organization mm. that's putting their hands behind their back and and waiting and seeing it's, a, <laughs> it's probably the most fun place to be if you yeah. are if you're looking to do some deals yeah and this seems to only be accelerating their activity at this present point in time i guess if looking at it from a business cycle sense given that they've just come out of a windfall year of energy price bringing in filling up the coffers while the western world suffers and dips into recession it's strategically it's, perfect timing yeah and it's the first phone call uh, it's the first phone call that people make that financiers make when they're looking to raise money right at the moment they are the first ones at the table whether it's mm. Uh, Credit Suisse, <laughs> desperately looking to the Saudis and looking to the Middle East for some emergency cash, mm. or whether it's FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried making a little trip across for some emergency cash. Thankfully, they got turned down. You know, <laughs> these guys are no fools. <laughs> They're not just a kind of limitless source of money. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. All right, well, look, let's let's go to the final topic. Um, unless you've got anything else to add that you wanted to to put into that last story. No, let's talk firing managing directors. <laughs> All right, Goldman's. They cut 125 MDs. And as I said at the beginning of the show, third round of job layoffs in less than a year. Um, so this isn't new. They've been laying off people quite aggressively. So perhaps, though, for those who haven't listened to previous episodes, just a little bit of a an ex- short explanation of why they've they've fallen on such tough times here gs yeah it's it's an interesting one and again in in some senses this is not really a story goldman sachs laying off 125 managing directors in the face of a relatively sharp downturn in deal making activity deal values and volumes are down 40% this year so you would expect there are calls internally and there have been calls from Goldman Sachs to kind of trim the fat as it were and the same is happening by the way at JP Morgan 40 senior bankers were fired from the investment bank and Citigroup the same so this is not just Goldman Sachs specific and this industry is pretty cyclical in the boom times you see the inverse article right you see Goldman Sachs hires 200 senior bankers in response to taking deal volume so mm-hmm. it's just a correction in one sense and, there, and therefore maybe it's a nothing story but let's look a little bit deeper into Goldman Sachs because when you see Goldman Sachs firing 125 and JP Morgan only firing 40 when you see that Goldman Sachs is placed to drop to number two M&A advisor this year JP Morgan number one that hasn't happened since 2018 
So this seems to be more of a story about the potentially structural decline, or at least the kind of strategic decline of Goldman Sachs relative to some of its peers. And we know, and I think we've covered this on, on the pod before, we know that Goldman Sachs have been trying, trying, trying to diversify their revenue streams away from a reliance on a volatile investment banking corporate finance revenue uh, revenue flow. We made that big push into retail banking with Marcus, which has since been folded into their wealth management team. They bought a company called Green Sky, $2.5 billion. They're just about to sell it. This is a retail um, uh, lending platform, small business lending platform. Uh, they're about to sell that for $300 million. So they're going to take a $2.2 billion write down. So in my mind, all is not right in Goldman Sachs. And, it, you know, and you see the, the stories are bad. $215 million gender discrimination lawsuit that they settled. <laughs> I saw a story earlier on this week that even Elon Musk is refusing to pay rent on the Twitter offices that are part owned by Goldman Sachs. So there's going to be a loan delinquency there. So it just seems to be bad for Goldman Sachs. And I wonder, what do you think? Is it, is it, is it due to management? Are they, just, are they just strategically misplaced or are they just making a bunch of wrong decisions? What's going on? I, I think I um, said this to Piers before. Um, I can't remember why it, was, it came about, but I think this was on that initial decline that we were seeing in deal flow and the impact it was having. And I was asking Piers the question. I was like, why is Solomon still the CEO? Mm. Like, what, what has he got that's keeping him there? Because it seems like I agree with everything that you said. And also, I think it gets compounded by, yes, I get the ebb and flow of hiring and firing. But when you fire and you see companies like Wells Fargo, for example, really ramping up their IB offerings, Santander doing the same, what would I be doing if I was Wells Fargo Santander? I'd say, you should just come here because I'll pay you better than you got paid. You'll get more responsibility, X, Y, Z. And they're going to be lost for good because it's hard to win them back then. It's not like they kind of, you know, it's not like a football transfer league <laughs> and yeah. in that sense. So I just wonder then if, for me, it's, yes, there is, it seems clear on the outside, there's something not quite right here. And there's been such massive misfires, as you said. Surely he's got to go and you've got to start fresh. And that would send then the marketplace a signal that, look, yes, we've restructured. But how can you go through the most aggressive restructuring of a company's history and not change management? I don't get that. Yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. I always talk to the students when we're, when we're doing one of our simulations. If there's a piece about a CEO leaving you've got to make a view as to whether the share price is going to drop or pop. Hmm. And you've got, <laughs> and it must be really depressing. You're the CEO of a company and you leave and the share price rises by 10%. You know, the market capitalization increases by 5 billion. That's, I, I, I would that's say, effectively your, your, your cost to the yeah. business. Watching, watching stocks over the years, I would say anecdotally, nine times out of 10, the stock goes up. Yeah. It's very, that's very really rare. You get like a, what is it, James Gorman or someone like that, where he announces he's going to step down in 24 months. There's a smooth succession. He's got a great track record. He's taken them from like, 
the bottom of the mountain to the summit and he exits like that's that's the um the kind of diamond in the rough if you like the common one is like football everyone yeah. loves you when you're winning you start losing you get sacked even the best <laughs> so yeah that's why i don't get yeah, about yeah, this yeah, situation absolutely. he's kind of held on for some reason maybe it's the maybe it's the djing maybe it's the late night parties they have at goldman's where he's just rocking the decks or something yeah maybe it's the dj <laughs> maybe he knows something that we maybe he you know maybe he's got the keys to some 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 horrible secret or something like that but we we shouldn't speculate but i'm just going to end this end this on just something we we again we talked to a lot of students about you know how to get a job during a downturn uh, mm. from an investment bank perspective and you'd see these headlines as a student coming out of university and you're thinking to yourself, oh gosh, this is pretty grim time to get hired. We spoke on Friday about, you know, ticks to enter through the side door or the back door. But I think it's worth saying here that these are managing directors. Hmm. The pipeline from a graduate perspective is still relatively good. We see, you know, we're seeing big internship cohorts that we are, that we're presenting to. And it, it doesn't seem like the fat is being trimmed at the bottom level but what i would be a little bit concerned about just as someone that look that's looking into getting into this space is that cutting that level cutting that level down by 125 mds it just makes the pyramid that bit steeper so that when you're a director and there are 125 less md roles available where do you go what do you do you know, Santander, Wells Fargo might not be hiring at that time in the future. So it is just worth thinking about, you know, your career in the context of the cyclical nature. And when you become a more senior employee, you become more expensive. Mm. Weirdly enough, you become more dispensable in some ways. There's only one place to go when you get to that point. Piff. Are <laughs> <laughs> you going to say Amplify? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> and amplify <laughs> facts by piff all right <laughs> is that our calling card if you're listening piff cool. all right thank you as always Stephen. and yeah thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you next week thanks Anne.